Today we have another great episode coming to you from the Moat Aquarium in Key West. I spaced out my aquarium podcast because I did three in a row, but I like spacing them out a little bit just to get a a little more of a variety of uh, subject matter in rather than having three weeks in a row be aquarium stuff. But I've been getting so much great feedback from the first two from you guys. I'm glad that you guys are into this stuff. I I like doing. I want to. I'm trying to find a way to do more animal behavior and wildlife stuff, that sort of thing. Trying to make those connections as we're moving forward. And speaking of moving forward, stand-up science is taking off and moving forward. We've had a successful trial run so far at the time that I'm recording this. I've done six of the eight uh, shows for the trial run, and the first five uh, sold out or basically sold out. So we've uh, we've added five more cities and are working on rebooking those five as well so that's a total of of 10 cities that i'll be doing it in next year for sure um i'll be announcing those those other dates as they get locked up but uh but those are all in the works portland unfortunately did not sell out uh i'm i'm gonna retry portland so uh there's still hope that it will in the future but i'm not going to add any additional cities for that one because it might be uh, it might be the case that this is something that people are excited about in the beginning and then um uh, it i i'm not able to find the same reach to get the people and the butts in the seats so i can't i can't commit to doing a larger tour until i know for sure that it's going to be um, viable to pull this off in enough markets so there's still a chance to add a bunch more cities seattle Coming up November 8th, uh, that's this week if you're listening to the podcast uh, right away as it comes out, and then Tacoma on November 15th. Now, if if the Seattle one sells out, I'm going to, because it's a larger venue than the other ones I've been doing, I'm going to uh, add five more cities around the U.S. Uh, as well as rebooking Seattle. And if the Tacoma one sells out, it's the largest one in this trial run. Then I'll add 10 more cities for 2019. So that will be a whole bunch of cities for 2019, not to mention that I plan on going back to um, each city that it takes off and doing it again. So let's just see how far we can spread uh, this show and how many how many cities that it might be viable for this. I have a feeling that places like Portland might not that's like this really awesome um, place with like tons of entertainment options that might be the hardest sell a lot of my so far the chicago and portland have been the two hardest sells just because they're the two cities kind of with the most other stuff going on in competition so it might be the case that uh that this works in slightly smaller cities uh, better. I don't know. That's what I'm trying to find out. So I appreciate your support in helping me spread the word. Word of mouth advertising is the uh, single most effective form of advertising. All the shows have gone so well. It's been amazing. I'm trying to put together some sort of sizzle reel or something like that so people can see a little bit ahead of time and get the gist of it. But um, yeah, just so excited. Thanks for the support. Enjoy today's episode.
Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. Today, I am back. Back this week at the Moat Marine Laboratory, the Elizabeth Moore International Center for Coral Reef Research and Restoration. I'm talking with postdoc research fellow Dr. Heather Page is joining me today. Heather, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm fantastic. Thanks for uh, thanks for joining me. Thanks for taking a little time around away from your uh, research. Got a little tour of the lab. Got to meet you quick and see. I got a, a few minute. I got overview of of your work, and now we really get to dig into it. So I appreciate you finding the time for me. So tell listeners a little bit, uh, and well, and tell me because I, I, I know two minutes worth of information about what you do. Uh, tell us what you do. So I'm a coral reef scientist studying the effects of ocean acidification on coral reef ecosystems here in the Florida Keys. And so I conduct experiments here at the Moat Marine Laboratory uh, where I stimulate changes in ocean pH using an experimental system. And I also study coral reefs out in the field around the lower Florida Keys. Okay, so the pH, the ocean acidification... This is all the rage these days, right? This, Very this is hot business <laughs> to be a part of. So uh, we we haven't talked uh, much about this on the show before. What what is uh, when people talk about ocean acidification? Is it like fish are tripping out everywhere, and <laughs> and it, is it like that's a real sixties tie dyed love so, fest happening in the ocean yeah. right now? Is that what they mean by that? Yeah, so it's actually a change in ocean chemistry that causes things like fish and calcifying organisms that are things with skeletons and shells to have trouble growing. So ocean acidification refers to the uptake of the carbon dioxide emissions in the atmosphere by the oceans. And so the oceans actually take up about one-fourth of the carbon dioxide that's in the air. And when that happens, this carbon dioxide reacts with seawater changing the ocean chemistry and causing it to become more acidic. Thus, ocean acidification. Mm. Ah, so as we're increasing CO2 levels, mm-hmm. we're uh, consequently increasing the amount of CO2 going into the ocean and increasing the acidity of it. Exactly, yeah. Uh, you, you said for a second you like process, you yeah. you looked at it, I was like I was like oh no she's just about to slam me down for how wrong I yep, just was and then, and then you're like and exactly yeah. Whew. Oh, uh, yes, that, that was so a real nervous face CO2. that you just made toward yep. me so more CO2 in the air yeah. equals more CO2 in the oceans that makes which equals sense. increased acidity or lower pH so Lower pH, and you're you're saying this is increasing what skeletons and shells? Wait, 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 it's 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 inhibiting their growth, the growth of shells. Yeah. So another change in the chemistry that's happening is affecting the saturation state of calcium carbonate, which is the mineral that makes up these shells and skeletons. 
And so this saturation state is what's controlling the ability of organisms to actually build this calcium carbonate or keep building shells, keep building these skeletal structures. Mm-hmm. And so it becomes, it takes more energy for them to keep growing. And at the same time, it becomes easier for these shells and skeletons to start dissolving as well. So it's kind of a two-way battle there. So they're having a harder time growing and their shells are actually dissolving at the same time. And this isn't just like it's embarrassing because now you're naked in the ocean. This is like you're you're probably a threat to more uh, more of a uh, more threatened by predators. I imagine if you're if you're exactly shells. yeah. So if you're smaller, there might be more predators that can eat you. Um, these shells often provide you know a hardened structure against not just predators but also air exposure in some cases. So if you think about oysters and clams living up in the estuary where it's very shallow, at times they might be exposed to the air. And so they close their shells to help control their temperature. And so if their shells are really weak or they don't have those shells anymore, all of a sudden they're going to get really hot and they're basically going to roast. So outside of making my girlfriend do oyster shooters to see if she throws up or not, what What's the, what's like the big purpose of oysters? What, what is, what's their, what's their big contribution to ocean life? Why, why is this important? Yeah. So in the case of oysters, they actually filter a lot of the water that's in the estuary. So that's kind of cleaning up the water. So if you think about the Chesapeake Bay, for example, um, back when they didn't have a lot of oysters, their water quality went down. So their water quality was not very clear. It was, not safe to drink for sure. And then when they started restoring these oyster populations, the water quality actually got better. Hmm. Uh, so that's just one example. We also have coral And we reefs. want good quality water because... I'm just kidding. Because. I, <laughs> you don't have to answer that one. We got it. Okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I did uh, mm-hmm. I did um episode um, years ago uh, about um, zebra mussels. Oh, cool. Uh, in, uh, it was uh, in Cleveland. Uh, okay, yeah. I'm from Ohio. Uh, yeah, oh, cool. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so Cleveland State, and and so we talked uh, uh, some about the importance of the, them being able to um, filter uh, mm-hmm. filter the water and everything. Okay, so, cool. Um, it, um, so so yeah, so oyster, and then what about so oysters and clams are doing that same sort of thing, and then mm-hmm. sometimes creating pearls, and we cannot. And make necklaces. Fancy jewelry. Yeah. So that's very important too. Of Let's not forget about the fancy jewelry. Um, and, and so, uh, so what is, are, are there, you mentioned one specific area. Is this something that is, uh, globally, uh, just every, everyone's seeing this everywhere with, with clams and oysters, this issue occurring. Are there certain regions that are being, uh, hit harder or are more fragile, more susceptible to? That's a great question. Uh, so ocean acidification is a global problem. So we are seeing acidification around the world, but there's also coastal acidification. So near the coast, we can also have acidification from other processes that are happening in the water. So it's kind of like a double whammy. So you have ocean acidification happening, but you also have other processes also causing acidification. So you get kind of a double acidification effect. Mm. Um, so coastal well, areas... So what are the other processes causing the... Um, so for example, a lot of freshwater runoff can cause coastal acidification. Mm. Also just calcification itself or respiration. 
So biological processes can change the chemistry of the seawater as well. So if you think about it right now, as we're sitting in this room, we're breathing in oxygen and breathing out carbon dioxide. I'm not proud of it. I don't feel good about what I'm doing. I know. You're just contributing. I'm contributing. (laughs) I'm just every, (laughs) listen listen to this windbag over here just contributing to this carbon Mm -hmm. problem. Uh, Yeah, so the same thing happens in the water. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you have a lot of animals in a certain area, they're all doing respiration and they're causing acidification as well. And if you think about coastal areas, it's very shallow. So you can see that effect from respiration uh, more strongly than you can in, say, the open ocean where it's thousands of meters deep. Um, and you also asked how fragile or susceptible different areas or maybe even organisms can be. And this is an interesting question because... We are still trying to understand how different organisms respond to ocean acidification. And so it's really hard to generalize, okay, every single oyster responds this one specific way, or every single coral responds negatively. There's differences based on your genotype, based on what type of species you are. And so that's something we're still trying to get to the bottom of. What what's what's loving it right now? What what's in the ocean just oh, loving all this acidification, just having a heyday? So actually, non-calcifying seaweeds tend to grow faster and do more photosynthesis. It's a good time to be seaweed. It's a good time to be a seaweed, but it's a bad time to be a coral. <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, and and we just had an episode all all about coral and all of the. Uh, the complicated um, solutions looking toward helping um, uh, stop gap some of the some of the issues um, mm-hmm. that global warming is causing. Oh, okay. Um, I'm running. So, well, well, yeah, we've been talking just uh, in the last episode. We talked a lot about the the uh, water temperature caught leading okay. to coral bleaching just so mm-hmm. just so you're up to speed on that was it that was everything no it, it, it's now you're all up to speed with what I'm we, totally on what speed. we covered <laughs> um so so what do you do here like what's what's your day-to-day <laughs> what, what do you what are you working on yeah so every day is a little bit different here um but my interest really is trying to understand what's happening at these community and ecosystem levels So most ocean acidification studies have looked at a single coral, um, a single oyster, a single seaweed, and tried to understand the response of just that individual. And I'm trying to take that to the next step. So, okay, if we put a coral and a seaweed next to each other and let them duke it out for space and resources, how is that interaction affected by ocean acidification? So I'm really interested in these species interactions and how it's actually shaping the coral reef ecosystem as a whole. So I just wrapped up a big month-long experiment uh, last week. So we actually paired together corals, seaweeds, and sponges over a month and exposed them to either just regular normal seawater or acidified seawater and kind of monitored those interactions over that month to see what would happen. And we are surprised. We didn't see as strong of effects as we thought we would see. So maybe there's some short-term resilience. We're not really sure. Um, but this is kind of a cool, new, exciting research that not a lot of people have been publishing about, at least. Um, but I think it's gaining more interest. Hmm. So, and, and how long have you been here, by the way, doing this? I started in January. Oh, well, and what was, your, cool. <laughs> what, what was your background? 
So I came here from Scripps Institution of Oceanography, where I got my master's and PhD in oceanography, also studying coral reefs and ocean acidification, but I was based in Hawaii and Bermuda for my research. Hmm. And I grew up in the Midwest, so. Oh, not, yeah, I'm from Wisconsin yeah. originally. Okay, um, yeah. I'm an Ohio girl. So. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so like Hawaii, Bermuda, now, now, now Key West. I'm sure you're just missing Ohio so, I know. so much. Just got to love the Midwest. <laughs> the, the, those those Ohio winters. You must you must really yeah, of course. For them. Um, so, so what what is it that you what is it that your uh, work hopes to accomplish? I imagine there's there's uh, several different things. You're probably just trying to see what actual effects are mm-hmm. happening and if they're matching predictions. And then is there like solutions to any of this outside that that you're that are testable in any way? Yeah. So one of the main reasons why I wanted to go into this research field is because it's oriented with chemistry, biology, as well as conservation in China figure out how can we manage these ecosystems. Mm-hmm. So again, my interest is really taking this from that individual responses to now thinking about an entire ecosystem, which is very complex. You know, there are a lot of species interactions. There's more than just one organism responding to one change in the seawater. There's warming happening as well as acidification. And so by looking at the bigger picture, we can maybe get a clear idea of what might happen in the future. And, you know, knowledge is power. So... Eventually, we can take this information and hopefully come up with solutions that can better protect these coral reefs. So, for example, maybe we find out that we need to protect our herbivores because seaweeds are going to go crazy with ocean acidification and start taking over the reefs. So that might give more justification for why we need to not fish as many herbivorous fishes or not be taking all the sea urchins away from the coral reef, for example. So the eventual goal is always going to be, you know, policy oriented or solutions oriented. Like that's what we're all about here at Marine Laboratory. Mm-hmm. So I mean, well, seaweed aplenty. Uh, it's going to be is seaweed going to start like just showing up on the menus everywhere. Are they going to? Uh... It's possible. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so we have seen a lot of seaweed growth here in the Florida Keys. Yeah. Um, so a lot of these reefs we see here, you actually have just as much seaweed and sponges as you do corals. Hmm. And so these reefs are already struggling to maintain high, not high coral cover, but enough coral cover to keep growing. And it might only become worse in the future. We don't know. So that's what I'm trying to understand. Like, is it going to become worse in the future? And are there ways that we can actually prevent it from getting so bad? Can we keep our coral reefs and all the amazing ecosystem goods and services they provide to mankind as well as the ecosystems here what are what are some of the ideas out there for i mean is it is it just is it still just you know mostly policy like limiting carbon emissions maybe Um. one day having maybe uh, are we all counting on like elon musk to have a (laughs) carbon filtering car that are Zooming around everywhere, uh, filtering out carbon emissions mm-hmm. uh, uh, for us is—is is that our our only hope, or or is are there are there uh, things that can be done interacting with like the ocean itself that can? 
I mean, so the primary thing we need to change is the carbon dioxide emissions. That's what's causing the ocean acidification to happen. That's what's causing global warming to happen. So that should be our first and foremost focus is reducing these carbon dioxide emissions. But that doesn't have to happen just at the, the policy scale or the global scale. That can happen at the individual scale too. So, you know, walking when you can instead of driving. I know I walk all over Key West. I hardly ever drive when I'm in Key West just because everything's within a mile. Might as well walk, get some exercise, get some sunshine. Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, you live in Key West. I mean, by many places you can do that, yeah, at least yeah. in the summer, in, you know. In, in many places, <laughs> in, in, in most anywhere, it's certainly possible to walk or take a bicycle mm-hmm. more often than the average person is. Right. Absolutely. And mm-hmm. you'll probably, I, I think a lot of people would probably uh, in, enjoy life a bit more and be uh, be a little healthier. Uh, I think so too. As well. Mm-hmm. Um, so, mm. so when you go to, uh, so how does this work like, uh on on your end of things when you're toast when you're testing these different levels what what does your setup look like what's yeah. your lab look like so this past experiment we had a bunch of tanks set up and in these tanks they either had a coral and seaweed directly touching one another or it might have just a coral so we can use that as a control um so this is kind of the simplest step so just looking at two individuals interacting with one another uh, eventually, the goal will be to step it up and actually create a mini coral reef within a very large tank. So we have some tanks outside that are about a meter deep, a meter wide, and maybe two meters long. Uh, so pretty big. And so we can actually create a mini coral reef ecosystem in these tanks and expose them to different acidification levels and see what happens to these ecosystems over time. And so these will have basically coils, sponges, algae, sand. I think we're going to halfway through the experiment. The plan is to add some herbivores and see if these herbivores can actually have an effect on the seaweeds that are growing in the tanks. Um, so that's kind of what the system looks like in terms of conducting experiments here. We're also monitoring ocean acidification in our coastal waters as well. So that usually involves taking a kayak out. Or taking a boat out if we're going out to the coral reefs and filling little bottles with seawater samples. And we analyze that in the lab to see how much acidification is, like what is the pH level currently. And so we can get a sense of what's happening right now, like what does pH look like now. And if we set up this time series over time, eventually we can see these long-term changes as well. Hmm. Um, now... Be honest with me. You go out to collect some water samples. Are you are you rushing back to the lab right away, or 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 is it like how fast are you paddling this kayak? Do you get out there and you're like, eh, I'm gonna kind of take my time getting back to the lab, or do you do you ever make up excuse? Do you ever be like, I better go and get another sample just because you're sick of sitting in the lab and you want to get out there? Well, the nice thing is we can we call this poisoning our samples. So we can add a chemical to these samples that prevent any biological activity from happening. So it essentially preserves that sample's chemistry exactly like we took it. Really? And so we don't have to rush back to the lab right away. We can sort of take our time a little bit, make some observations while we're out there, 
you know, what's, what's growing in that ecosystem? Is it coils? Is it seagrass? Um, so, so wait, this, that's interesting. So, so like my, uh, my MacBook, uh, here has some sort of a, a time machine program or something like that where it, where it stores whatever the settings and apps and whatever else mm. were at a certain time. So if something goes wrong in the future because of, uh, you know, nice. I'm going to the wrong size. Yeah. Who knows? I, yeah. It's not worth mentioning. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but uh, I can go back in time. It, it preserves that. So you're able to put a chemical into water that freezes all interactions? So what it does is it kills all the microorganisms living okay. in there. So there's tiny microorganisms that could be doing respiration photosynthesis. And what it does is it essentially kills them. Mm. Um, and we fill these samples up so there's no uh, air in the bottle. And so there's no gas exchange either. And so once we open it, we do have to be pretty efficient with our time and actually analyzing it quickly. Because once it's exposed to the air, again, you have carbon dioxide and seawater mm. exchanging that gas. Um so yeah, it's a pretty nice tool for scientists because we can go out and take samples, you know, all day if we need to, um, and then bring them back to the lab and either analyze them that day or we can analyze them the next day. I remember in chemistry class, there's like a little pH strip test and you dip it in and then it's, why aren't you just paddling out there, dipping your, dipping your little uh, eighth grade <laughs> <PH> chemistry pH <laughs> strip in there? And taking a look at it, and then you go, got it. You mark so, it down. Yeah. And so the chemistry differences we see out here are smaller than what you can see from a pH strip. So a pH strip can tell you basically whole number changes. So if you go from, if you remember, your pH scale goes from 0 to 14. And pH strips can tell you if you change maybe from 7 to 8. But some of the changes we're seeing out here, for example, are, you know, 7.6 to 8. So you can't see that with the pH strip. So we need to have a more accurate way of actually measuring pH. So we do have probes that we can use that will tell us what the pH is. But we actually want to get more information than just what the seawater pH is. And so with these seawater samples, we can tell you how much carbon dioxide is in that water sample. So it's called dissolved inorganic carbon. And we can also measure total alkalinity, which tells us how well that water buffers against pH changes. And so we just get more information by taking these bottle samples because these are instruments that we can only use in the lab. We can't use them in the field yet, although there's been some really exciting development in that field. Um, so, yeah, we just want to get more information about mm-hmm. what the overall chemistry is versus just pH. Because just pH can only tell you so much. Hmm. So how has, um, I mean, you're, you're new here, but I'm, I'm sure you... You know the past work that's been happening here. How how has this area specifically uh, changed over time and been been affected by uh, by carbon? Uh, how has the sea life changed? Okay. Um, so there's been a lot of changes in our ecosystems here in the Florida Keys, but we can't say necessarily that it's due to ocean acidification. Mm-hmm. And so, for example, we had a disease outbreak in the 1980s that wiped out a lot of the branching corals. And so that wasn't ocean acidification, but it did change the whole landscape of the reefs here because you lost all that really complex coral that 
was providing really all the structure. Hmm. And so, oh, we we had uh, we had the big hair metal bands too. So the eighties were just hard on everybody. I that's think. true. That's very true. <laughs> so um, so it's really tough to tease apart exactly what is all the different drivers. Right. Yeah. Could you also have ocean warming happening at the same time as ocean acidification? Mm-hmm. And, and then, I mean, is it, it this may not be any research that you guys do, but is, is, uh, pollution a factor that that's, is pollution a factor that you guys are looking at here or is it? Um, so I can't say here on site if we've done anything looking at, I'm assuming you're talking about like nutrient pollution. Yeah. Yeah. We haven't done anything specifically here. But another ocean acidification scientist, Dr. Emily Hall, actually did some research at the Red Sea with some collaborators, and they were looking at the combined effects of ocean acidification, ocean warming, and nutrients pollution on coral health. Uh, so again, just looking at one species, one individual, but they did find that ocean acidification and warming can impair the ability of corals to deal with those nutrient pollutions. And that's something I've been really interested in as well. Um, so I'm trying to start with just one stressor at a time. So just stress them out with ocean acidification and then build upon that knowledge. So now you can add ocean warming to the mix and kind of get tease apart the drivers that way. So kind of looking at them individually and then looking at them in combination. Mm. And so that is something I would be interested in pursuing in the future. I'm just not quite there yet. So mm. I'm only on month eight. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, get to it, darn it. I'm working on it. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, this is, uh, yeah, this is such a cool job. What's your, uh, what's your favorite part of what you do? I want, I want favorite and I want least favorite part of your, of your job here. Someone's going to become, a, uh, get into, what is it? Oceanographer? Is that what you call it yourself? Is that? I'm a biogeochemist, I okay. guess. Yeah. I struggle to define myself because I have a lot of interests, and I so I kind of just follow whatever I'm interested too. in in the moment. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Um, um, okay. So I think my favorite part is kind of a two-part answer. Uh, my first favorite part is that every day isn't necessarily the same. So it's not a nine-to-five job, come in, sit at your desk, work at the computer for eight hours, and go home. Every day is a little different. I might be sitting at my computer writing a paper. I might be in the lab where you found me earlier today running seawater samples. I might be out in the field collecting seawater samples. I could be conducting experiments. And so I really like being able to change it up every day. And also my other favorite thing about this position is being outside. So again, I don't have to be locked up behind a desk inside. I can be outside, be in nature, see what's happening with my own eyes. Uh, So I just really love being on the water, in the water. Like just stick me out about I'm happy. <laughs> oh, I know, man. Summer's been. I I, I moved to Portland last year. Oh, okay. And I had. I mean, I had a lot of things going on in my life, but I had a, I had a rough first like gloomy season in yeah, Portland. Kind of great, then, there, isn't it? Yeah. And then summer rolled around, and I'm just like, oh, everything's wonderful. Uh. So, but in the Keys, you get that uh all of the time. That's for the most part. For the most part. Well, yeah. I guess hurricane season's the thing that you got to... Hurricane season's okay. Winter, you can't really get in the water too much because it's too windy. Mm-hmm. So you can't really see very far in the water because all that wind just stirs up all the sediment. But yeah. still not a bad place to be. Um, and 
least I'm I'm really gonna push you on this. Your <laughs> least favorite part. I I I don't think I'm not sure I've ever asked this question of any guest before, <laughs> but I think it's funny, and uh, I don't want to get you in trouble. Yeah. But I do want to know. I I mean, uh, I would think that it would be frustrating, like doing some of your work and seeing some of these uh some of these real issues that the that that a lot of the general general public is just not aware of at all and then and then a lot of us uh, have have to make these inconvenient choices but then there's also people uh out there that just want to deny that any climate change or pollution or anything like that is is an issue yeah I mean, I like educating people about the issue. So to me, that part doesn't really bother me so much that people don't know about it because scientists are getting out there more. We're, we're getting the word out. We're getting the message out. We're telling people about these issues and letting them know what they can do to help prevent these issues or at least not make it as bad as it mm-hmm. could be. The climate denial is a tough one, uh, especially right now. So I was actually going to say my least favorite part of the job mm-hmm. is stressing about finding funding. So, you know, this research doesn't pay for itself. So we constantly have to be looking and applying for grants um, or donations to actually pay for the research that's happening. And so, you know, with this current political climate, it's a little bit hard because some, you know, some government people are not allowed to say climate change. Oh, yeah. So No, we get it. We see what's happening. Or at least I (laughs) hope we do. I hope yeah. listeners do. Yeah, so that's been uh, my be big challenge because like, this is my this livelihood. And, and don't yeah. see that. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, that's uh, that's scary. But I guess it's uh, the natural flow of things. Hopefully this will be, I don't know. I, I'm i not terribly optimistic about the political climate in our, we'll in our country but we'll see it seems like maybe we inch forward into as, as scientific progress takes a, a very long time to be long time. uh to go from what is the cutting edge thing in, mm-hmm. happening at, to the lab and uh, to getting to be a generally a, a known and accepted thing in mm-hmm. in populations of of people and I am generally optimistic, though, because a lot of action has been happening at like the state and the local levels. So even though we might not be getting much support from the federal level, we are still getting support in other ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I am actually very optimistic about where things are going from here. Oh, that's good. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, getting funding is always the big yeah, challenge. That's a lot of, I, I, um, a lot of academics. That's something that, that I'm still fairly new at. So yeah, yeah, yeah. China and it's so time consuming, right? I mean, I don't, uh, I, I don't, uh, I'm not a scientist. It and can be very time consuming. It seems like, like I a, said, I like to be outside. So yeah, right. Sitting at a desk when it's gorgeous outside is pretty tough. <laughs> I have. I don't want to end up leaving here without hearing um, some of the original. Uh, history of Moat itself. Are you comfortable talking about that? You're new here. I know a little bit about it. Yeah. <laughs> Can you tell? Because I, I was given like a little bit of a spiel and it's just occurring to me now that I'm like, oh, that was such an interesting story. I uh, hope okay. that listeners get a chance to, uh, okay. to see that. Yeah. So 
moat, uh, the, the history of, of this, uh, this Key West location. The Key West, correct? okay. And then I'll, I'll, uh, when you screw up, I'll correct you because okay. I was taken. Yeah. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I, I, I got, I got a okay. three minute spiel and, and so now I'll pretend like I know everything okay. about it. Yeah. You probably know just as much as I do. <laughs> <laughs> so this facility, well, this facility wasn't even here until a year ago. So this site used to be some smaller buildings and it was actually a monkey research lab. And so on one of the islands, uh, just down the ocean from here, it was housing a lot of monkeys. And so scientists here would paddle out and feed the monkeys every day. But eventually they stopped feeding them, I think. And so the monkeys started eating their own island. So the monkeys realized this mangrove is very tasty. And so when that happened, the government, I think, stepped in and said, okay, no, you can't do this anymore. You got to take away all these monkeys and replace the mangroves that they ate. And so that was kind of a challenge at the time was, okay, well, how do we even grow mangrove trees? That's not something people were doing back then. They were primatologists, too. (laughs) Yeah. So quite a challenge. Um, But I think they did start growing the mangrove trees and outplanting them. And I think David Vaughn came in at some point when they were doing that. And he kind of got the idea about coral restoration. So this facility mainly started as a rest- coral restoration facility. If we can bring back those dying mangroves, why can't we bring back all the the, the corals. threatened corals? Well, corals are very slow-growing animals. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. It just takes a while to grow them. Animal but... slash plant slash rock. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure you saw the restoration facilities downstairs. We've pioneered ways where we can get them to grow faster than they would naturally out on the Mm -hmm. reef. Um, And this kind of happened by accident. They broke a coil in a tank and kind of forgot about it, thinking it would die. And when they came back, they realized all the fragments had actually started growing. So that's what started this whole micro-fragmentation of coils, which is how we're growing all the coils here. Oh, I like a good serendipitous accident like that. that, that the best that. discoveries happen from accidents yeah. and failures. Yeah. With quotes. <laughs> yeah, I think that a penicillin was a was like a dirty petri dish sort of yeah, situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, um, yeah, and then so this facility started growing as coral restoration and eventually research as well. And a year ago, we got a donation from Elizabeth Moore. And so that's, she's one of the main reasons why we have this brand new research facility down here now. Mm. And that's how we got the name Elizabeth Moore International Center of Coral Reef Research and Restoration. <laughs> it <laughs> is the longest. I, I was told that I didn't need to say all that. And I was <laughs> like, no, I'm saying it, darn it. I am definitely saying the Moat Marine Laboratory Elizabeth Moore. That can't be the way that you say it. Elizabeth Moore, yeah, I think it is. Elizabeth Moore <laughs> uh, um, International <laughs> Center for Coral Reef Research and Restoration. You have it down. You've only been here eight months and you got it. You got I it down. I had like to say that. it so many I think times. It, I think over it would and over take myself. Me two years to really nail it like that. Um, so, so when you're, uh, when you're, um, in the have you seen it, how fast would you say that these uh that the this acidification is happening this is uh, the ocean is enormous uh right. how how fast are these ph levels changing you're you're going out there and 
how often to go and get a sample and and bring it back is it is there a lot of variation occurring um um so that's something new that we've started doing down here so we've only recently started doing these monitoring programs in the lower florida keys Mm -hmm. Uh, so we don't really know yet how much variation there is but how often Um, are you going out to get a sample so with the mangroves we're going out once a week about Mm. when we can it's of course weather dependent because it's outside um, coral reef monitoring, we haven't actually started yet. So we're in the planning stage of that right now. But around the world, we do have buoys located on coral reefs as well as in open ocean locations. And these buoys are measuring the amount of carbon dioxide in the water. Hmm. And so they've been out long enough. We can start to see some trends and how the pH is changing. And we can also make projections on what pH changes will be by end of century. So by 2100. Hmm. And so these projections based on uh, business as usual, carbon dioxide emission scenarios, so if we change nothing about what we're doing right now, the pH is expected to drop about 0.3 to 0.4 pH units, which sounds small, but it's a 150% increase in acidity. So it's actually quite a yeah, big Yeah, you got to say that first. And yeah, then I know. Drop the points. Kind of bury the lead. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so those are the projections for 2100. However, these... This was based in 2013, and so we actually have a new set of projections coming out really soon within the next year, and so I'm really interested to see how these projections have changed based on what our carbon dioxide emissions have been doing over the last few years. So it seems like we're actually possibly exceeding our worst-case scenario, Hmm. and so we might actually see bigger changes than what we think at this point. Hmm. So. So I'm really curious to see what these models are going to show us uh, that are coming out in the next year here. But in your recent study, the changes have didn't have as significant of a of a impact on on the on the life that you were monitoring in the lab, at least in the short term, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. So that's uh, it's it's. Uh, Maybe it's, uh, I don't know. It seems like a pretty scary touch and go situation. So I'm just, I'm just trying to factor in my head how, uh, how worried we should be about that. Because, it tw- so 2100, so when I'm 120 years old, mm-hmm. um, uh, what are the, what are my concerns going to be about the ocean life? Does anyone have, uh, uh, are they making projections? Are they, do they have theories about how the assist, uh, this this projected this estimated change in acidity is going to change uh, ocean life and and affect this planet? But what are people? Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what's yeah. what's the scoop? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so a nice thing about ocean acidification is we can kind of simulate these conditions in our experimental system, so we can bubble carbon dioxide into seawater until we get that change in pH that we expect by 2100. And so that's what we've been doing to try to see what ocean life might look like by 2100. And we've been literally simulating these in laboratory conditions. And so with coral reefs, uh, actually the bigger concern is global warming. And so these warming events are going to happen more frequently and more often. So... That's a concern that the corals are going to bleach, much like we saw in the Great Barrier Reef these last few years. And so that's actually a bigger concern for coral reefs right now compared to ocean acidification. However, ocean acidification also causes that skeleton to dissolve. 
So you have both of these issues happening at the same time, and they're both just devastating the coral reefs. So right now, there's interesting hypothesis that these coral reefs might shift towards being sponge algal-dominated reefs, um, which is a lot of what my research is coming from as well. That's why I'm so interested in looking at these sponges and these algae or seaweeds and these corals, because we think there's going to be this shift towards algal sponge reefs. And so I'm really curious to see is the shift actually going to happen? And if it does, what does that mean for how these ecosystems actually function? Are we still going to have the same fish? Are we still going to have those same shellfish, you know, sea stars, all the sea life that we're used to seeing on a reef? Um, and I think that's still a question we're trying to answer at the, you know, big ecosystem level scales. Um, so yeah. I, I was looking forward to being 120 but now i'm gonna be it's gonna be just nothing but sponges and seaweed on my plate i imagine if i want to eat fresh ocean stuff i guess we don't know um so that's why we're trying to get the word out so hopefully we can affect change so so you're you're dropping stuff you're you're uh going like here's here's these species right now and now let's stick them in this environment that we're projecting um 2100 will will look like mm-hmm. but i i know in terms of ocean life that's not far from now but that's at least a little bit of a space then it's because the the exact the, the way life is right now uh, the mm-hmm. genes and everything else that uh that are doing well for life right now maybe changing and fluctuating in between that time and and fish yeah. that say don't do well if you just drop them in a bucket of this mm-hmm. ph changed water doesn't necessarily mean that that means extinction for that species if you're giving it x number of generations between now yeah and, and that's that something time. that's hard to study in a lab especially with something long living like a coil mm-hmm. you know how can we study if a coral is actually acclimating or adapting to the environment yeah how long does coral live for uh, hundreds of years yeah very Oof. very old hmm. um so that's why they always tell you when you're out diving or snorkeling on reef not to touch that coral because when you touch it you take away a protective mucus layer and it makes them more susceptible to things like disease. Mm. And so if you touch a big coral colony, you know, you've touched something that's, you know, decades old, at least. Mm. And so that's kind of sad. Like, that's all it takes is just someone to kick it or, you know, be touching it and grabbing it. So we always try to say, look, don't touch, you know, just enjoy right. nature. Don't leave foot- only leave footprints behind. Right. Um, mm. But Yeah. It's also very interesting just to think about, like, okay, are things actually going to start adapting, start acclimating? Are we going to see these genetic responses from generation to generation? And that's something that's very difficult to do in a laboratory setting, I think. Not to say people aren't trying to do it, so people are trying to get at that type of question. Yeah. Uh, so, um, <laughs> I, <laughs> I have a... Uh, so... Anyway, first off, I wanted to uh, I wanted to make sure that we don't forget because uh, this is very important stuff. You guys are down here trying to uh, trying to save the world. Uh, how how can people learn more about what you do? How can they get involved and help? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there's several things people can do to learn more about what Moat Marine Laboratory is doing. So you can visit moat.org 
slash research to learn more about the many different research programs at Moat Marine Laboratory, both here in the Keys and other locations in Florida. Or you can also donate at that same website as well, so moat.org slash research. Uh, another good way to support the research that's going on down here in the Keys is actually to get a Moat Protect Our Reefs license plate. So some of the money that goes, that you spend for that license plate actually goes towards a grant program that coral scientists can apply for every year to fund some research. And then finally, if you're local or if you're visiting the Florida Keys, come visit us here on Summerland Key and take a tour. We have tours twice a week now on Tuesdays and Fridays. And then I just want to say one last thing about yeah. what people can do to help with ocean acidification as well. Mm-hmm. And so we talked about how this is a global problem and we need to decrease how much carbon dioxide we're emitting. But there's also other stresses happening on coral reefs too. So any other things we can do to help out coral reefs, give them their best chances, great as well. So, for example, reducing how much plastic we use. So get your reusable bag, take those to the grocery store. We have plenty of alternatives for straws now as well. So then we have these metal straws, there's bamboo straws, there's paper straws. Anything oh, my girl, my girlfriend is at war with plastic straws oh, yeah. right now. Yeah, she gets real awesome. worked up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it might seem like a small thing, but any little thing we can do to help the coral reefs deal with climate change is actually going to help them in the long run. So you can do it. Yeah. Got to remain optimistic. <laughs> and if you're like, hey, who should I vote for? And someone is saying that climate change is a thing that doesn't exist that means that either one they are exceptionally corrupt two incredibly poorly informed and don't have uh enough knowledge to help us lead our populations into an ever-changing world or uh uh three they are just simply lying to you it's one of those it's one of those three things and and if that's what you want in uh someone in in charge of creating laws and telling us how to live our lives uh then uh maybe relax on voting day and let the rest of us get out there but other than that uh uh, yeah, be reducing uh, use and everything that that is all fantastic. But but this is like we, we just we just need to have a mature. We need to have an adult conversation about climate change and global warming. There there is no debate. We can debate how what will happen with it and like how severe it is or mm-hmm. or whatever else. But there there is no debate outside of that. And and anyone that. Uh, is denying climate change is denying reality so um very important and uh i i don't like getting um political on the show this show's meant to just educate people and inform people but this is we've now i mean it's it's (laughs) it's pretty obvious that the the results are in it's a thing so uh don't listen to anyone out spreading poor information and lies so thank you listeners for being such wonderful curious people and uh for being uh caring human beings and trying to be good stewards of the earth and we will talk with you all next week
next week on Here We Are. We'll be talking with Sarah Waters at WSU Vancouver about human development, child development stuff. Oh my gosh, this is such a crazy conversation. It was so fascinating. This I, I know I say this about everything, but it's genuine. I genuinely mean it. Stress contagion. We're talking about how infants can detect stress in the mother. A stressed mother goes to hold their baby, and the baby has higher levels of stress hormones running through their system from that. Fascinating stuff. Make sure and tune in for it. Even if you don't have kids like myself, it's just we, we applied it to a lot of areas of life and, and how different stressors can be contagious um, and affect people around you and, uh, and some of the science behind that. So, really terrific episode. Thank you all for all of your support on Patreon.com slash Shane Moss. It really helps me out a lot. I'm getting a bunch of new stuff to put stand-up science together. I'm trying to make sure I have wireless mics all the time for Q&As. And it's just, it's <laughs> it's never-ending. You guys know. Hey, uh, we're all... We're all doing this life thing together, and especially any of you out there that have uh, have your own business. You know, there's just all these unforeseen things that pop up left and right, and the expenses never end. So uh, I'm I'm making um, very good use of all of your Patreon contributions, and uh, I I really 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 appreciate it. I want to give a shout out to some people I haven't talked about in a while. Ramin Nazer, I haven't given him a shout out on here, and way too long go to RameenNazer.com check out his daily drawings his comic books he's great on Instagram if you're I'm just getting into Instagram myself uh, and he's just fantastic has so many awesome and he's blowing up too I've, I've had people come out see my posters and know as Ramin's work and look into it so there's um, this awesome kind of cross pollination going on uh, right now and Jimmy Fro with the Jimmy Fro podcast. You can check out all of the uh, newest indie music on the Jimmy Fro indie music podcast. And, uh, you know, the theme song's done by my friend Mike Kaplan and MYQ Kaplan and Zach Sherwin. S H E R W I N. I don't know why that took me a second. But, uh, yeah, those guys have all done a fantastic job. It's a big part of this crew and everything that goes down on the podcast. So thank you to them and those of you that listen all the way to the end. Thank you the most because you are my favorites.
you know.